0: Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Jesus said those words near the very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, that sermon where he laid down the core values of the kingdom of God. And he says these words to let us know that we help to build the kingdom of God by choosing to live as peacemakers. However, the reality is that's not always easy to do because our flawed human nature gets in the way. And we often wind up living as peace breakers rather than peacemakers. Peace breakers, where our attitudes and our actions and our words actually cause disruption. Here's a rather humorous look at one common form of peace breaking. Some of you will recognize this picture. It's a famous painting by Norman Rockwell, and it's called The Gossips. We don't know what's being said, but it's apparent that some juicy tidbit is being passed from person to person. And we see men and women of various ages and stages joyfully gathering into the conversation. And some of them are very excited, some of them are very angry, but what's sad is that no one stops it. They keep the conversation going on and on and on. Until in this case, we see the woman who started it winds up being caught. (laughs) I find myself wondering what the conversation was like there between the man who was the brunt of the gossip and the woman who started the gossip. Now here's what's really interesting. This is one of Rockwell's most popular paintings. I find myself wondering, why would a picture about gossip be so popular? Well, I think it's because we see ourselves in that picture. We recognize how tempting it is to gossip because it can be so fun. Yet I think at the same time we recognize how destructive gossip can be, and this painting provides us with a sense of justice when the originator is confronted. Here's what's sad though we look at this picture, we understand the issue, we understand what's, happen- what's happening, and yet we do it anyway. It's so much easier to be a peace breaker than a peacemaker. Jesus wants us to be peacemakers. And in just a moment, we're going to listen as Jesus describes a strategy that helps you and I pursue peace in our relationships. First though, there's a principle that we need to grasp from the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, verse 11, if I can find it here, there it is, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Now we understand that other people can wound us in a variety of ways. Harsh words and actions can take their toll, they are hurtful, yet we always can choose not to retaliate. The advice given here by King Solomon is that we can respond to a wound with patience. We can choose to not fly off the handle, and we can choose to overlook the offense. This means we actually let it go completely. We don't become a peace faker and pretend to let it go, because then we would just store up our hurt and keep it as ammunition for future use. As Rob said in his message last week, we shouldn't archive our anger because that only leads to a later explosion. When we choose to overlook an offense, it sets us free from all of that. And this kind of behavior happens all of the time in healthy relationships. Married couples, roommates, close friends regularly must choose to let things go. From how to spend our money to how to spend our time, the possibility for conflict in relationships is endless. And when we choose to overlook an offense, it promotes peace. And yet, having said that, it's true that there are some personal hurts and injustices that simply can't be ignored. And that's where Jesus steps in because he helps us to make peace when relationships get broken. And in the book of Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 20, Jesus explains how we can use a variety of strategies to relentlessly pursue peace. Let's begin in verse 15. This is Jesus talking, he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now, Jesus is addressing a situation where another person has committed a personal sin against you. Now, the words against you are not in the original Greek text, but the The implication is so clear and so strong that many Bible translations just add them in. And they say, if your brother or sister sins against you, there's a conflict between two people driven by sinful behavior. What do we do, though, if if we've been hurt by someone's actions that are not actually sin? I believe in those situations we should try to follow the advice of Solomon and overlook the offense because some things are just not worth fighting about. However, in those times when we do need to respond to what someone has done, then Jesus wants us to respond as a peacemaker. And he says that this means we handle the matter individually. We handle it privately. The only people to hear about the issue and the only people to talk about the issue are the two people directly involved. This is really simple advice. And yet, we so often find it hard to follow. And instead of talking with the individual who's offended us, We talk about the individual who's offended us. And we draw in third parties, other people who are not actually involved in the conflict. And we become a living example of Norman Rockwell's painting as we start passing information around. And this immediately makes the conflict more complicated. And we need to see that when we do this, we're not pursuing peace promoting peace, we're hindering peace. Here's a helpful way to visualize this. Jesus says that if there's a conflict, you have a simple conversation, you and the person who's offended you. It's a straight line conversation, nobody else involved. You can't get much simpler than that. That's peacemaking. But here's what we so often do. We employ a strategy that promotes peace-breaking where we create what's called a communication triangle. That instead of talking to the offender, we talk to a third party or multiple third parties like we saw in Rockwell's painting. And this makes the problem infinitely worse. It makes it worse because all of these side conversations can inflame people. These side conversations encourage people to take sides. And the other thing that happens is as conversation is passed around among multiple people, inevitably the nature of the conflict is distorted because that's what we do. Funny example of that, when I was in the fifth grade, our teacher, Mrs. Stilson, had us play a game called Telephone. Some of you will know that game. She did it to teach us the danger of gossip. And in my case, the lesson was indelibly imprinted, which is why I've remembered this story. I don't always live up to it. Because I, too, sometimes fall prey to gossip. But here's what happened. She had us all stand around the edge of the classroom, and she turned and whispered something into the ear of the student next to her. And then Tom whispered it to Judy, and Judy whispered it to Sally, and Sally whispered it to Bob, and we passed it all, around, all the way around the classroom through all 20-plus students. And when it got to the last person, he said the phrase out loud that he had been whispered, and he said, Mr. Hansen was arrested last weekend. Mrs. Stilson then said the original phrase that she had whispered to Tom, and the original phrase was, was this, I saw Mr. Hansen talking with the police in front of his house on Saturday. What a surprise. As we passed the story around, we made it worse. We went from a man talking with the police to a man being arrested by the police. It's a silly game, but it sure makes the point that there is destructive power in a communication triangle. And when information gets back to the offender, it's usually incomplete or altered, which makes reconciliation exponentially more difficult. That's why Jesus never recommends communication triangles. We should avoid them like the plague. And we need to take Jesus at his word and do what he asks. That when there's a conflict, we get together individually and privately with the other person and try to resolve the issue. Now, admittedly, those kinds of conversations are hard. We have to talk honestly with each other about the issue between us. We have to try to not let anger or bitterness get the best of us or we'll just lash out and make things worse. We have to approach those peacemaking conversations with a lot of prayer. And we have to ask the Holy Spirit to guide our attitudes and our words. And most importantly, we have to approach the conversation with the right goal. The goal is not to win the argument and impose our will on the other person. The goal is to make peace. And I have found that talking honestly with other people often will result in peace. Forgiveness can be offered and received and the conflict can be laid to rest. And there is great joy when that happens and wounds are healed. However, because we're flawed people, sometimes a one-on-meeting, one-on-one meeting doesn't result in peace. It might be that the person who is the offender is convinced that he or she didn't do anything wrong. Or perhaps, as we meet with the other person, we're just not able to clearly communicate and get down to the real nub of the issue. So what do we do? Do we give up? No. We just change our tactics. If we can't resolve the problem individually, then we try to resolve the problem communally. And that's what Jesus talks about next, continuing on in our Bible passage, verse 16. Jesus says, but if they will not listen, that's after the one-on-one conversation, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So now Jesus recommends drawing some other people in, but this is not a communication triangle because no one's being talked about behind their back. We're inviting one or two outside people into the conversation to be some objective witnesses for us. They don't come to take sides. They're not there to eagerly listen so they can then go and spread gossip about the conversation they've just heard. They participate to help us make peace. This means they need to have some wisdom and maturity. We need to think carefully about who we invite into that kind of a conversation. We might select the leader of our life group or maybe the teacher of our adult Bible fellowship. But whoever it is, one or two outsiders can help bring clarity. And they can help promote peace so that forgiveness can be established. Now, I find this is where a lot of peacemaking breaks down because our sense of pride tells us that we don't need help. And our sense of pride keeps us from opening up about the real issues with other people. And I think we prefer gossip because it allows us to control the story without any accountability. A peacemaking conversation with outsiders involved requires us to surrender some control, requires us to be a little bit accountable, it requires us to practice some humility. And Jesus urges us in that direction, even though it doesn't come naturally or easily, because when there's a conflict, he does not want us to isolate ourselves from the community of faith. He places us within community, this community, for a reason. And one reason is that when relationships have broken down, we can help one another make peace. Now sadly, some people resist making peace. They dig in their heels. They refuse to listen to other viewpoints. They refuse to acknowledge that they might perhaps be wrong. And yet Jesus urges us to not give up. Because peacemakers don't surrender. So Jesus says, take another step. Keep pursuing peace. How? By involving even more members of the community of faith. We see that in the next part of his teaching. The first part of verse 17, he says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. What does he mean by that? Does he mean I should stand up here on Sunday morning and give reports about everybody in a broken relationship? I don't think so. Now, there are rare occasions when the whole church might need to be informed about a conflict in order to promote healing. But I think the best way to apply Jesus' advice is to enlarge the circle of involvement in our conflict by bringing others into the conversation who know us well. And so, for example, if we have a really vibrant life group and we have built a strong sense of community there, why not invite the life group to come alongside us? Maybe our adult Bible fellowship group. Maybe it's time to bring the elders into the issue. But I think what Jesus is saying is the community which knows you best may be able to offer wise counsel that helps move the relationship toward peace. And the goal is to help the offender understand that a serious matter is at stake and that making peace must be a top priority. At our last church, we had two people who were at odds over a financial transaction between them that had gone sour. Bob felt that John had cut some financial corners in an unethical way. So they got together individually, but they couldn't resolve the matter. They asked a mutual friend to sit in with them in a second conversation, but they still could not find resolution. Well, they were part of the same life group, so they asked the group members to help them make peace. And that group spent about three hours one night talking, praying, listening to one another. And by the end, because of the wisdom and counsel of the group, Bob and John had gained some clarity. John apologized for his actions financially. Bob apologized for some accusations against his brother that had not been grounded in truth. Forgiveness was offered and accepted. Now, it was extremely tiring for Bob and John to work through these various levels of discussion, yet they understood that it was essential. So they took Jesus at his word and they relentlessly pursued peace. And God's Spirit worked through the community of faith to help those two men achieve that goal and have a restored relationship without rancor and animosity. It's awesome when people relentlessly pursue peace and allow God to work in their midst to help them achieve that goal. That's what God wants, but sadly, it doesn't always work out that way. What do we do if the offender never listens? Jesus says, change your tactics once again. Second part of verse 17, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So, we've worked through a number of conversations in a conflict. We're still not at peace. Someone's digging in their heels. What do we do, Jesus says? Treat them like a pagan. Treat them like a tax collector. That sounds really harsh. Until we remember that Jesus hung out with pagans and tax collectors. He had dinner in their homes. He knew they were far from God. He loved them and tried to draw them into God's family. And so as hard as it is when someone refuses to make peace, we need to try to treat them the way Jesus did. We try to stay connected to them. We pray for them. We try to continue to reach out and model the love of God because we know that if they have hearts that are that hard, there's some brokenness within them. And we want them to be healed by our loving God. Now, that other person may never respond. They may never change. That's their responsibility. Our responsibility is to never give up because making peace is an extremely high priority for Jesus. And that's what he talks about in the final part of this passage. Verse 18, Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So how do we bind and loose things? I believe we do that through repentance and forgiveness. When we refuse to make peace, we keep ourselves in spiritual bondage. But when an offense is acknowledged, when forgiveness is offered and accepted, we set ourselves loose. We set ourselves free. And and, and in a way that I can't fully understand or explain, Jesus says, That freedom happens not just here on earth, but also in heaven. I don't fully get that, but I think Jesus is saying that peacemaking has eternal consequences. And by these words, he is urging offenders, lay aside your pride, lay aside your stubbornness, make peace. I believe he's urging offended individuals, don't give up. Keep pursuing peace relentlessly. And he does that because Jesus loves it when we make peace and allow him to heal our broken relationships. And verses 19 and 20 drive this home. Verse 19 is often lifted out of this context within the passage and offered as a general comment about prayer, but it's not. Jesus is talking about prayers related to making peace. He's saying that if two people are in a conflict and they agree to resolve it and they pray and say, God, will you heal the rift between us, Jesus is saying, that's a prayer God will answer because Jesus loves it when people make peace. And verse 20 is not a general comment about the presence of Jesus, though we love to use it that way. It's a comment about His presence in the peacemaking process. And whether we're trying to make peace individually in a one-on-one conversation, or trying to make peace communally where we bring in another person to the conversation, Jesus is saying, I will be there. And I believe He says that because there's no place that Jesus would rather be than in the midst of two or three of His children who are relentlessly trying to make peace. Jesus is present in a powerful way when we choose to live as peacemakers because the kingdom of God is built on the foundation of forgiveness and peacemaking. When we read the biographies of Jesus in the Bible, We see Him relentlessly pursuing us so that we can experience peace with God. Here in this passage, He's asking you and He's asking me to do the same thing with each other. To help build the kingdom of God by relentlessly pursuing peace in all of our relationships. As I mentioned before, we are living through a very unusual and challenging season in the life of our nation. Politics seems to dominate everything, and people are fearful and anxious and angry. People are looking around to identify who's an ally and who's an enemy. And our culture right now promotes peace-breaking way more than peace-making. And if we're not careful... We can get sucked into this and start creating divisions between us that do not need to exist. Talked with the elders about a month ago about this, and we agreed it was a good time for us to talk about this issue because of the temperature of the times in which we live. As I said a couple of weeks ago, I know a church in Portland where Attendance is down by 50% since the last election, because the Republicans and the Democrats don't want to be in church together anymore. And as I talk with other pastors in our community, I'm appalled at how many congregations have experienced dissension and division over all kinds of issues, rarely over foundational matters of truth, usually over issues of personal preference and pride. I know one congregation that has been through three church splits in the last 15 years. And I think about all this, and I think it must break the heart of our God. So here's what I think God's asking us to do Based on the advice we've seen here this morning, we've got some great advice from King Solomon. We can choose to overlook an offense, and I believe we should try to do that whenever possible. And when we can't, then we can embrace this advice from Jesus and pursue peace relentlessly. I believe there's one very practical thing you and I can do. I think we need to try to head off gossip right at the start. So if someone approaches us with a derogatory comment about an elder or a deacon or a staff member or another church member, I hope the first thing we'll say is this, have you spoken to that person about the issue that you're offended by? And if they say no, then we need to encourage them to do the right thing. If they say, yes, then let's affirm them for doing the right thing. And in both cases, we then should say, and I don't want to hear what you have to share because I don't believe it's going to promote peace. And if we're the one doing the sharing, if we're tempted to pass on a derogatory or critical comment about another member of our church family, we need to stop and ask, Why am I doing this? How will passing on this particular comment promote peace in our relationships? Jesus wants us to be peacemakers. And I know that some of you today are in broken relationships of all kinds. And I want you never to forget what Jesus is saying here. He's promised to be intimately involved with us in the peacemaking process. And so when we choose to believe and act on what we believe, when we take Jesus at His word and follow His advice, He can help you and He can help me to live as a peacemaker. And He can bring healing to our broken relationships. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Let's take Jesus at His word and relentlessly pursue peace.